And it was really a magical moment for me because it sort of solidified that I wanted to work in this type of industry where characters could like really bring that type of joy to people. And I think it, I think I realized the most when like I had looked up and I saw the teachers and it looked like they were like kids again. Hello and welcome everyone to Straight Ahead, an animation podcast where we spotlight rising black, indigenous, and people of color who are the future voices of the animation industry. I'm Raymond Ozalanda, one half of your co-host. And I'm Yuki Okamoto Wong, the other half of our whole host. Our guest this week is Lee Cree. She is a mixed race, black, Cherokee, Puerto Rican, and white artist working as a story revisionist at Titmouse Incorporated. Would you mind telling us a bit more about yourself? Hello, my name is Lee Cree. I am a 2D animator, a storyboard artist, and development artist, but I'm currently working as a revisionist over at Titmouse and originally from the East Coast, born in Jersey, uh, moved to New York when I was 12, so I'm an East Coast girl. (laughs) So the way we like to start off on Straight Ahead is by playing a little game called In Between. We are going to give you two similar choices and you have to choose in between the two of them and then let us know why. I'll start us off with the first question. Which giant robot would you rather assemble slash pilot Voltron from Voltron Legendary Defenders or the Megazord from Power Rangers Mighty Morphin? I'm just going to say Lee is freaking out right now. You guys didn't see it on camera, but she's dying. It's okay, Lee, breathe. (laughs) I feel very betrayed. Top 10 anime betrayals right now. Oh, no. Oh, oh. My childhood, but then my adolescence. (laughs) Okay. Um, No, this isn't fair. I think I'm going to have to go with the Zord. Simply because of like the nostalgic value it has for me. Mighty Morphins was the very first uh, Power Rangers I watched. I was like five at the time it's purely just because childhood me would want that (laughs) no that was the right choice (laughs) congratulations you've won (laughs) the reason why i won't pick voltron is because i think the design of it especially the hands are kind of silly like i think it's silly that the the hands are lines oh man coming down to design it's just like not practical i mean it's like it's like gundams like Mm -hmm. sure like they're cool but gundam f91 is the coolest because it functions like nicely (laughs) (laughs) that's true okay follow-up though yeah so if you so if you were a power ranger or super sentai what would your suit color and character trope be oh my god so childhood me would want to be red or blue ranger but um I think as I've gotten older, I'm like, nah, I'm a black ranger. Damn. (laughs) But I would, I'd probably like have my trope be like, oh, we're talking like 90s Power Ranger tropes. Are we talking about today? Like anything, like whatever you want. (laughs) All right. I I think I'd probably be that moody, like artsy kind of kid because that's what I was in high school. And if this is TV, I'd love to play that trope sort of like yeah like crank it up (laughs) just like crank it up to 20 yeah so i'd be the very moody artsy black ranger and then you know i have my 
counterpart who's more extroverted and outgoing and they warm my heart and then people ship us together. <laughs> That's so cute. I can already picture it. They're going to do this, the typical artist trope where they're going to look over your shoulders to see what you're sketching. It's already a finished drawing that you're just cross hatching. Yeah. See? You <laughs> get it. You get it. <laughs> It's not a it's not a rough sketch. It's not a uh, it's not a caricature. It's just a finished render that you're just like. Let me pretend that I know how to shade right here in this little eyeball. Just <laughs> yeah, man, that was that was hard. I should have known. I should have known going. That was that one was like probably the most loaded one. But hopefully these other ones won't explode your brain too much. I feel almost bad. All right, would you rather be a demon slayer from Kimetsu no Yaiba? Or an alchemist from Full Metal Alchemist. <laughs> That's it. We killed her. She's gone. It's all right. <laughs> we have to end the podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> Don't cry, Lee. We didn't even get to the interview yet. <laughs> this is forget the interview. I wasn't prepared for this. Like you guys sent me a list of questions. I I have like a little notes window right here with like here are thoughts that. I'm pretty sure I will have, but because it's going to be 8 a.m., I'm not going to remember. I was not prepared for this. Oh, my God. Would I be a demon slayer? Or would I be an alchemist? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Can't I be both? Unfortunately, no. You have to pick one. You have to pick in between. Well, if I'm an alchemist, I have to, like, go see the truth, and then I'm able to clap my hands, because I think it's too much work to, to keep drawing a circle. Well, you could have like gloves like Roy or oh, whatever with, with a symbol on yeah. it. So it, it would be like mm-hmm. specific to your alchemist power. Oh. oh. Yeah, I think because I think the majority of them have the gloves. I think Armstrong has like these metal things yeah. that also have yeah, like yeah. The, the symbols on them. Yeah. These metal gauntlets. This isn't fair because I just recently rewatched Demon Slayer and Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood back to back. They're both <laughs> incredible. <laughs> you know? Maybe my existence would make more sense in Full Metal Alchemist. (laughs) (laughs) But there's war going on. But there, you know what? I'll be a demon slayer simply because I want to meet Muzen and tell him he looks like Michael Jackson. Like he straight up looks like Michael Jackson. (laughs) I thought that too when I saw him. I was like, why does he look like he looks looks exactly from Thrill? Like, or not turn- from um like smooth criminal right yeah the smooth white criminal. suit <laughs> like when in the opening sequence when they reveal him he turns around i was like is that michael jackson <laughs> <laughs> which but, is um, like it's like great but also like i'm like damn is michael jackson the head d <laughs> Guys, like, the lore <laughs> Also, I really like the costume designing in Demon Slayer. Mm. The costume designing in Film Alchemist is also pretty good in terms of like a fantasy sort of military uniform. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. given current times right now, I'm like, hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's fair. That's fair. But that's my answer, Demon Slayer. I'm sorry, Film Alchemist. <laughs> that was super hard because I don't think anybody like realizes this about the two shows they have the same premise (laughs) if you think about it two siblings set off on an adventure to find a particular item and join a government organization in order to like return their sibling to normal yeah like some sort i was just like this is the same exact story but just told in two different ways yeah oh super Mm -hmm. different 
they joined the organization to fund their journey as well. Yeah. yeah. I thought, wow, I love anime. <laughs> yeah, dude. <laughs> oh, that hell was yeah. really hard. Well, Lee, that was in between. Thanks so much for playing with us. Sorry that we destroyed you uh, with these questions. <laughs> We're not sorry. This is all, this is the exact reaction we wanted. So, what do you do as a storyboard revisionist for Critical Role Legends of Vox Machina at Titmouse Incorporated? Oh, I cry and I die. <laughs> <laughs> all seriousness, like any revisionist, we do revisions for storyboards. And that means when the storyboard artists are done with their clean boards, the showrunners, whoever's in charge, the directors give notes and the revisionists are the ones that make those changes because by the time the storyboard artist is done with an episode, they move on to a new one. So we're sort of like, in, in a way, we're sort of like the last people to make those storyboard changes and it can vary from something simple as giving a character a costume change throughout a scene or something very very technical like this shot is a 3d multiplane shot and you have to use the 3d tools in storyboard pro or clarifying bgs or for the background artists and stuff so that they at least know the perspective mm-hmm. what's mm-hmm. the shot and also Fun little fact about working on Critical Role is that the revisionists do the conforming. (laughs) Oh. Wait, can you explain what the conforming is for those that may not be aware? So conforming is a step in animation. When an episode's animatic is locked, we have to go through panel by panel to make sure everything matches from the scene numbers, the panel numbers, the audio, the dialogue notes the action notes and also we have to put in the camera movements so when it is shipped off they know exactly what to draw for like the character layouts the animation and so on that way we don't come back with an episode that has a scene that was taken out way way prior and it's a very tedious job but for me it's kind of relaxing because i'm not like really thinking anymore yeah I'm like yeah. oh yes I get to do a menial clerical task and not draw. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Oftentimes I think that's uh, handled by like a production assistant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like a really strange job that I think as of right now, they're still trying to figure out whether it falls on like production or the the art side. But thankfully on Critical Role, the production team, which by the way, they're doing so much. Mm-hmm. please say thank you to your production people they're going over production team <laughs> yes thank you production team during like the working from home situation they're doing the absolute most to make sure that this stuff works but on critical mm-hmm. role the production team is super on top of everything so they already do most of the conforming like way before the revisionists have to do it so by the time i get to it all the dialogue is already in there. All the camera movements have already been noted. Like the most I do is making sure that you're almost like proofreading. In yeah, a sense. We, we proofread it like 5 million times before we ship it out. And even after we do it, the production team does it one more time. <laughs> so, <Yep. laughs> 
Um, that's my job as a revisionist outside of just mm-hmm. like crying inside because it's an incredibly difficult show in the best ways possible. And there are some very amazing people working on the show and I seriously cannot wait for people to like have their eyeballs blessed. (laughs) (laughs) To kind of touch on that topic, I think it's interesting that they do have revisions do that. I can understand the logic behind it because when you are storyboarding, you're doing revisions, you're probably the most familiar with what's going on visual language wise and what's going on with the story. You can Mm -hmm. understand because again, production has so much shit on their plate and there's so many things in the pipeline Mm -hmm. that they have to worry that they might not be always familiar what happened in the boards in a particular moment. Because that's kind of something similar to what we're doing. Well, when I was a revisionist on Gremlins, because we're on a 3D show. So the thing that mm. we do is something that has to be done because it's 3D is like layouts. Mm. And so to help with layouts, there's these things called action maps that need to be done. And what an action map is, for those that may not know, it's kind of like a top down view of the set where you kind of have like dots to represent the characters and kind of how they're moving in the scene and where the cameras are placed. So before it was handled by the animation team or then at the layout team, but sometimes they don't know how we use the 3D set to shoot our episode or how, what cameras, what kind of camera lens we set yeah. or, or where we kind of place the camera. So it made it easier for them. And because the revisionists were more familiar with the, with the episodes and the animators, it made, it made more sense for the revisions mm-hmm. to do the action maps. We have to renumber the cameras sometimes because like, again, sometimes mm-hmm. shots get cut, shots get renamed. And when they get to us, like the final week, all the shots get renamed. So there's no like shot 115 and then it goes to shot 50 because oh, stuff was yeah. changed. Really. That it would goes be... shot 10, 20, 30, 40, 50. And so when that happens, like, damn, this shot used to be named shot uh, 115. Now it's shot 50. So like now I got to rename this camera. Oh so, my God. I would so it's, cry. No, it's, 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 it's a thing. But like, again, um, I bring it up only because it's kind of similar to what you're doing mm. where it's like, Yes, it's another thing that the revisions will have to do, but it just makes sense because you are more familiar with it and it probably would be easier for you to get done, at least on our team, than, than the animation team or the, yeah. the layout team. Also, as a revisionist, I mean, de- depending on what episode, at what part of the production you are, there will just be times where like your workload is like pretty light. So it just also kind of makes sense. To like make use of the revisionist in that way because we have the time production is literally breaking their backs to yeah. get these episodes delivered on time and then the mm-hmm. the directors and the storyboard artists are also breaking their backs to like translate these very intricate and complex scripts into visuals and making sure mm-hmm. that it's not only like super cool and dynamic but it's visually telling a story it's easy to understand for both the audience and the animators so like as a revisionist you know we're sort of like the support team you know like when you're playing like final fantasy as one does yes as one as one does (laughs) and like it's it's a team it's a team-based sort of thing so when hope decides not to heal you (laughs) just just cruise you over yeah sort of like that like think of working in animation like being a team in final fantasy we're, we're sort of like the little hope where we, we assist and kind of fill in the gaps and, you know, we're all supporting each other and making sure yeah. we get these episodes out on time. So was working as a storyboard revisionist on Star Trek Lower Decks your first industry job out of school? Technically, I 
think that would be my second because before Lower Decks, I worked on Rugrats, the the reboot. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. While I was a a storyboard trainee at the Nick Artist Program at Nickelodeon Studios, I was actually assigned to that show. And gosh, that's another like kind of full circle for me. Rugrats is one of the very first animated shows I watched as a baby. (laughs) Also, Cree Summer was in it. (laughs) (laughs) If you were to like tell... 10 year old me that hey in the next 10 years or so you're gonna work on the rugrats i think 10 year old me would be like mm. <laughs> i don't know about that one chief but yeah lower decks is technically my second rugrats is mm-hmm. my first industry job after graduating from college while i was on rugrats they were basically training me to be a revisionist which i think is really amazing because being a revisionist is a great way to to learn about the, the storyboarding process and just the animation pipeline in general, right next to maybe like production assistant. So on top of like being in the program, I was also given revisionist tasks by the storyboard artist. And I had to sort of balance between revisionist work and, and program work. And I had a bunch of different deadlines I had to keep on a daily basis. And then <laughs> we had to work from home. <laughs> but like, two and a half months into it and that was a beast in its own but i got through it so i guess for you then how was that transition period from being a student to an industry professional when you were at the nick otters program for rugrats i think at that point it was a little bit easier for me because so the nick artist program is it used to be two tracks which was general design and storyboard this year they added a third track that which is cg and at that point I was already doing freelance, like working from home for two years. So I think I kind of had a a, a leg up. used to it. I was already like kind (laughs) of used to having several things to do at once. In fact, while I was interviewing for the Nickelodeon Artist Program, I had four to six freelance jobs. <laughs> Holy interviewing shit. For them. Oh my God. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I just got an interview for them. Yeah, I could fit that into like 3 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> I think the transition from like being a student to like an industry professional definitely like takes a bit of time. Mm-hmm. And if you're like me, you'll probably have like sort of a mental breakdown at some point because you, you sort of realize that. The world is so much more complex and bigger than like what school kind of teaches. I think by the time I got to Nickelodeon, I had understood enough that I was able to adjust very quickly in in studio. And also when we had to start working from home, like this is my element. I've been this is like my fourth year doing working from home. So I'm (laughs) I got everything down packed. So you have four years of uh, of experience working from home. But (laughs) how is your experience working on Star Trek Lower Decks? How did that differ from what you do now on Critical Role Legends of Vox Machina? They are completely different shows. (laughs) Complete opposites. (laughs) Every single day while I'm on Critical Role, I think to myself, how did I get this job? Star Trek Lower Decks is a primetime sci-fi comedy. So because it's a primetime comedy show... A lot of the shots are flatter. Mm. The character acting is not as like dynamic. It's a little bit, I think, more restrictive in that sense because it has to like kind of fit into a particular style that was sort of spearheaded by Family Guy. It was so different, but at the same time, it was super fun because I'm also a fan of Star Trek and my parents love Star Trek. They grew up on it. So when I mm. told them, they were like, oh, you're part of the legacy now. 
<laughs> so cute. And then I had to like break it to them like this is not a serious show. This is very much like a, a sitcom. <laughs> I was gonna ask. I feel like when a lot of people heard what Lower Decks was gonna be about, a lot of people were probably taken aback by it and like probably very critical of it. And not yeah. like because like again, something established in Star Trek is like more of a serious show. Yeah. And so but from what I've heard, I, I've heard like the people that have actually watched it and given it a chance. I heard nothing but good things from Star Trek Lower Deck. I heard that it's really funny. It's like hard and it's just a different take on the Star Trek universe. Yeah. I mean, I can talk about it a little bit more because the first season has already been aired mm-hmm. and I worked on the second season, which I don't know when that's coming out. Um, <laughs> but when it does, please watch it on Paramount+. Plus. <laughs> <laughs> great, great plug. For those who don't know, yeah, Star Trek Lower Decks takes place, I want to say after... The next generation mm-hmm. in terms of like the timeline so a lot of the jokes that are done in star trek are very much like ribbing on the whole property itself for being so serious and i think that's what i love the most about it is as a kid i knew star trek was a serious show but to be able to see it like you know take jabs at itself it's really kind of funny and my, my parents did watch it and they're just like, oh, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. They've watched it from the very first Star Trek series back in the 60s up mm-hmm. until this point. So for them, it's like a it's like somebody's catering to them in a sense like, huh, I get that joke. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My dad, when it first came out, he called me and was like, oh, my God, this is like really funny. Like, yes, <laughs> I know. and also the the team truly did its best to capture what makes star trek great but also you know we're having fun ourselves i think it's just a really great exploration of star trek that doesn't need to be so serious and can allow itself to be a little bit lighthearted. but compare that to critical role (laughs) 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 completely different show (laughs) so we're Lower Decks is primetime comedy. Mm-hmm. Critical Role is an action-adventure show. An adult action-adventure show. <laughs> but I feel from, like, based on your work, I feel like that's probably, like, more your speed. Because, yeah, you were on Rugrats, then on Star Trek. And obviously, Critical Role is, like, complete 180 so the skills might not always transfer did that feel like a big jump to you like i was like oh i'm used to drawing babies or i'm used to (laughs) drawing these characters like laughing or whatever and like now jumping to this i think in terms of like the visual style of the show it was like oh anime Mm -hmm. (laughs) i mean when i looked at it for the first time i thought oh this kind of feels like young justice but it has elements of anime in there so in terms of visual style it was very much up my alley i was able to adapt to the style pretty quickly but in terms of the tone of the show it's wow (laughs) i can't even explain it because it's not out yet Mm -hmm. it's been a very difficult transition for me i will say (laughs) i think it's just because it's exercising a different part of my brain that i haven't really figured out how to do yet doing action adventure storyboards are completely different compared to doing comedy board i can't understand how the board artists do what they do because some of the shots that they in sequences that they create i just sit there and think how did you do this (laughs) how did you think of this how are you doing this every single episode? And it just keeps getting higher and higher and higher. 
I'm incredibly intimidated by the whole entire team. <laughs> <laughs> a critical role. No, but I, I feel like that's a good thing because like that, that means you're working with amazing people that you can learn from. Because I think as a revisionist, you're in the very unique position where you get to work on every board artist's boards and you get to see how they think. You get to see how they set mm. up their shots. You get to see like, oh, damn, this is how this person approached a very heavy dialogue scene. Like how study how they cut the shots or like, oh, damn, this is how this person handled this chase or this action sequence. And some people want to jump into board artists right away and don't see revisionist as a beneficial position. But honestly, being a revisionist, it's an opportunity for you to be a sponge and learn. Yeah. I mean, you totally like nailed it on the head. I would like to think that, you know, Rugrats taught me how to be a revisionist mm-hmm. or Dex got me like comfortable with being a revisionist and critical role is teaching me how to be a board artist. Mm. So on Critical Role, the directors who, again, they're breaking their backs to make sure this stuff is getting done. They also are taking the time to give the revisionists a storyboard class. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> awesome. So, yeah. So every two weeks we hand in either thumbnails or usually rough boards. Never like super clean because it's only two weeks and we all have like other tasks to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They give us assignments to storyboard a section of an episode. They critique us. And it's it's really amazing. There's just no words to describe it. Like to be able to have that sort of one-on-one with each director, including the supervising director, is priceless. And like, I would have never thought in my life that I'd be working with the people that I admire so much. And I, I the shows that they've worked on, I, I watched as a kid and to now be like working with them and they're sort of mentoring me and teaching me how to storyboard. It's like, whoa, this is insane. But yeah, you're completely right. Being a revisionist is so integral. And mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure there might be artists who are able to like make that jump really quickly. But mm-hmm. I think being a revisionist is super helpful because you do get to learn. And then also when you are a board artist, you, you remember those times when you were a revisionist and you're a little bit more mindful about the next person who's going to mm-hmm. see your work. Mm-hmm. So I, I say for anybody who like, you know, wants to sort of climb, I guess, the position ladders, whether it's in production design or storyboards, do take the time to like actually be in those starting positions because as you keep going up, you'll continue to like learn more and more. And then also it, makes you a little bit more empathetic and considerate of people who will be handling your work down the line Mm, because animation is a very collaborative effort and if one person isn't on their a game or not thinking of the next person it can really become a snag in the road later on Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, be a revisionist if you can (laughs) yeah no that's again i very much agree with that i'm very much also the philosophy of like always try to make the job of the person after you easier yeah like be always be mindful of the person behind you and that's a honestly if you can learn that that's a wonderful learning experience that you can gain and speaking on wonderful learning experiences can you talk about your experience interning at sesame workshop as an animation and design intern what would you like to hear because there are many stories (laughs) (laughs) Did you meet Elmo? Oh, yeah. Uh, not only did I meet Elmo, I got to be Elmo. <laughs> oh, whoa. wait, for real? Yeah, for real. As you mentioned before, I interned at uh, Sesame Workshop, which is the studio responsible for making Sesame Street, the preschool show. I was an animation and design intern in the special projects department, which I believe 
is no longer a thing and is now like just production. Mm. And special projects handles a lot of weird projects from animating the segments of Elmo's world on Sesame Street TV show to international projects, or in my case, (laughs) being Elmo for a day. (laughs) So Sesame Street actually has a English learning program that they implemented in Japan, and they sort of collaborated with this Japanese corporation. And the program was called Sesame Street English. And this corporation had already implemented it in certain schools in Japan. And students who were learning the program were able to come to America and visit Washington, D.C., New York City, and Boston. And when, when they came to New York City, which is where Sesame Workshop is located, they were able to come into the studio and meet Elmo. I think you can already piece together what's happening. <laughs> so they usually prepare these sort of mascot performances weeks in advance because they have to order the costume. It has to ship over there. And then they got to make sure everything's in tip top shape. There's like a whole entire rehearsal and everything. So the person who was supposed to do the mascot performance was not available. So they're like, okay, let's get the backup. The backup was not available. Said, so, okay, we need to get our backup backup. But the backup backup, which was the secretary of the special projects department, which is what I interned for, was currently in Japan. (laughs) Oh, Lord. (laughs) They were like, oh, no, the backup's backup is gone. Who is under 5'4 and under 120 pounds? So (laughs) each department asking asking people's heights and weights. And eventually they got to us and it was me and another intern. And they were like, hey, do you have any assignments or deadlines in the next two weeks or so? And we were like, no, why? Do you need help with something? And they said, would you like to be Elmo for a day? (laughs) (laughs) And we said, yes. So they, they pull us to the side and they're asking us, oh, like, how tall are you and how much do you weigh? So the other intern was actually 5'4 and wasn't able to fit into the costume. I'm barely five feet. (laughs) So he said, awesome, you're going to be Elmo for a day. (laughs) I thought, oh, all right, this is normal. (laughs) So the next week they come up to me again and they're like, are you ready for your training? I said, what? Training? He's like, yeah, you have to, you know, learn how to wear the suit. You need need your Elmo training. (laughs) So for a week, I had Elmo training where I got to wear the suit and I had to learn how to act as Elmo. And there were certain rules about being a mascot that you have to keep. So when I was Elmo, I was not allowed to speak. I had to hug anybody who like came towards me. Mm -hmm. And like I had to just be in character all the time. And it was wild. So after a week of Elmo training, the next week was when the Japanese students were coming in. I was super nervous. I was in my suit like this, (laughs) thinking... All crunched up, yeah. All all scrunched up. I thought, oh my God, these kids are going to figure out that I'm not the real Elmo. (laughs) I could hear them like in the distance and they're all just like, yeah. They're they're like little kids, right? Yeah, they're like elementary school to like middle school kids. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. (laughs) They were super excited when they announced Elmo. And I said, all right, here we go. 
And I step out and all of their heads collectively (laughs) 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 they just turn instantly and they bum rush me. (laughs) Did they like knock you over? They couldn't knock me over because I had two handlers. Okay. Like on my each side of my shoulders. (laughs) They knew they were gonna brace you. (laughs) (laughs) They were like, don't worry, we got you. (laughs) So they like bum rush me and all the kids are like you know, excited. And it was really a magical moment for me because it sort of solidified that I wanted to work in this type of industry where characters could like really bring that type of joy to people. And I think it, I think I realized the most when like I had looked up and I saw the teachers and it looked like they were like kids again. Like they were just Uh, as excited as the kids. And they were just like, oh my God, Elmo. Oh my god! And I actually broke. I broke the rule, and I like giggled <laughs> because I thought uh, it was so. I thought it was so adorable that the teachers were so excited to see Elmo. But thankfully, apparently, I think the Japanese voice actor for Elmo in Japan is female. So to them, it didn't like it didn't break mm-hmm. kayfabe. Yeah, it didn't break the image. So when they heard my giggle, they were like, oh, "It sounds just like Elmo." <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Immersion yeah, so, even even deeper. <laughs> so yeah, it was super amazing. And those were that was like one of the weird things I did at Sesame Workshop. I, I did many other weird things there. I, I even took a picture with an Emmy when I was there. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's it's super great to hear that you had that cool kind of magical experience for those kids. You got to dress up as Elmo. Like how many interns can say they've done that? Not many. But it's super cool that you're able to be a part of something that's meant for like preschool kids. Because again, they're really young, influential. Talk to us about your experience attending Monster Rock College of Art in Massachusetts. I attended Monster Rock College of Art from... 2014 to 2018, 2017. Uh, Montserrat College of Art is a private art school in Beverly, Massachusetts, which is about 40 minutes away from Boston, Massachusetts. And super small, no more than like 500 students, maybe even less than that. Mm -hmm. Whoa. It's very, very small. Like we couldn't even fill up the graduation hall (laughs) at all. Uh, I went there. I majored in animation and interactive design along with a minor in art history, which is, now that I'm thinking about it, why didn't I minor in creative writing? But I think it's because I I love history so much. And I just thought, oh, I want to write a 15-page paper about animation. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a nerd. My school was a little bit more fine arts than like a real animation school compared to like SVA or CalArts. So unfortunately, Mm -hmm. the animation program wasn't as robust as those types of schools Mm -hmm. but i think at the same time because it was more fine arts that it really helped me gain those foundational skills every time when i can question a dm from like a young artist or a student who is into the same stuff that i'm into which is anime and they ask how did you make that work i usually just answer you just got to strengthen those foundational skills, your figure drawing, your perspective, your color theory, proportion. Mm-hmm. Like the only way you're going to make it work is to sort of showcase that your drawing skills are super strong and nobody can really contest you on that. But yeah, overall, it was an experience I needed because I needed a change of scenery. High school wasn't the kindest to me mm-hmm. and I was able to 
be around people who were like-minded mm-hmm. and I got to learn how to interact with different types of personalities, which helps now working in an industry where you're much more collaborative in that sense. And you sort of have to learn how to navigate certain spaces with different types of personalities and be a people person. The thing that I appreciate that you did is that you really got understanding fundamentals and that really seems like it has helped you in your career. And the thing that I kind of want to stress is that to the audience that may be listening that are thinking about school or that are in school is that it doesn't necessarily matter the school that you go to. Yes, some schools have more connections than others, but I honestly think it's what you make out of your experience going to the school. If you can maximize your opportunities and experiences uh, when you're there, it can really help set you up for the future. And like you, I feel like you did that. I feel like you maximize your opportunities, even though it's like you said, it was more of a fine art school. You mm-hmm. maximize what you were, what you got out of it. Yeah. I mean, not to deter people from going to college. Mm-hmm. I do think that it's such a big financial decision that for listeners, for those students who are listening to this, or even like college students who are still listening to this, to really seriously think and research those types of things. Because in my case, I needed it because high school wasn't great and I needed a change of scenery. I'm going to tell like a, a little bit of a sad story, I guess. But I, I originally wanted to go to CalArts and I took the AP art class, which is it's a specialized art class that you take a test and then whatever grade you get, you can transfer college credits. Mm-hmm. I did the whole entire thing and I actually got a six. It's usually out of five, mm-hmm. but I actually got a six, which is very, like a, so it's a rare occasion mm-hmm. when they do stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And with that, I, I could have gotten into Cal Arts, <laughs> but thinking about it makes me want to cry because it was that emotional. Mm-hmm. But I remember, I remember my mom coming in and um, telling me we couldn't <laughs> because it was too much money. <laughs> ah, sorry to cry about that. No, but. no it's fine. <laughs> No, that's a real situation that I feel like a lot of totally. other other students could be in. Like, I think when it comes to pursuing a degree in animation, CalArts mm-hmm. is probably one of the first schools people think about. Yeah. And the thing is, it's, it's expensive. Not everybody can afford to go. And if you do, you're in incredible debt. Not only is the tuition expensive, but the cost of moving there is astronomical. And yeah. that type of decision put, being put on a 17-year-old is too much. So, yeah. I advise those two who are in the high school and thinking about going to college. There are other alternatives for you, mm-hmm. especially nowadays with the internet. Like it's amazing. You have things like, what is it called? Schoolism, brainstorm. Yeah. The creator of Kipo has his own like set of classes for people who want to do storyboards, who want to do animation, who want to do writing, who want to do background design, color design. Mm-hmm. And those classes are like at max $800, but the knowledge that they're giving you is mm-hmm. priceless and you don't have to spend thousands and thousands of dollars <laughs> to achieve the dream that you want. Totally. And again, you're, you're living proof of that. <laughs> I mean, my, my school was still expensive because it, it was a, an, a private school, but mm-hmm. the only reason why I was able to get through it was because I was on scholarship money. Yeah, I had to keep my grades up the entire time, which, mm-hmm. you know, kind of takes a, a beating in my social life. So a lot of the yeah. times when I was in school, I was in the studio, like just working and working and working because mm-hmm. I knew if I didn't keep my grades up, I couldn't get the scholarship money and I couldn't keep going to school. You know, schools like CalArts and SBA are amazing. Of course, they, they produce some like 
top-notch artist, but Mm -hmm. think about your circumstances, state schools, smaller schools, even online workshops are just as valuable as going to a school like CalArts. And if I'm living proof of that, then it's possible for anybody, truly. (laughs) Yeah, extremely so. I think like, I mean, particularly now, there's a lot of people out there who are not in the best financial situation. It's the same as you, where their parents, you know, approach them and say like, hey, we can't afford these schools. Like, especially Mm. private art schools get really expensive for jobs that don't pay you very well. It's like, yeah, it's very expensive. (laughs) But I mean, if you're able to afford that, like, great, go, go ahead, like more power to you. But like, you know, if you can't go to Cal Arts or SVA or anything like that. It's not the end of the world. It's really not like these schools that are going to get you the job like you are. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. like, yeah, don't worry about the future too much. I mean, it's a great plus if you can go. But I mean, it's it's not too bad, to be honest. Yeah, it's just make, make the most of your situation. Mm-hmm. And for my case, that's just what I had to do for myself. Like, okay, my school's animation program doesn't necessarily cater to TV animation, but what can I do to learn the things that I want to learn? And that's where the internet came in super handy for me. And I argue that's probably the reason why I was able to, you know, get a good start in being a 2D animator and then getting into storyboards that way. I I like to say, find creative solutions to those problems, because Mm -hmm. in reality, that's just life. Like if you come up to an obstacle and you're not sure what to do, get creative. <laughs> That's our jobs. Our, mm-hmm. our jobs is to creatively problem solve all these things simultaneously. If you start learning how to do it in life, it'll be easier when like you're doing it on the job. <laughs> to kind of like shift gears, something I desperately want to touch on, I really want to talk about is uh, <laughs> please talk to us about the thing that you're probably the most known for is your Power Ranger Super Sentai inspired characters. Like, it obviously looks like you have a love for Power Rangers or Super Sentai. Do you have any plans to do something more with that? Oh my god. I do love Power Rangers. In fact, (laughs) right next to me is the visual history of Power Rangers. And it's like, it's this thick. It's a textbook of all the production, costume, and visual design of the series from Mighty Morphins. Up until oh. the, the 2017 uh, film. Oh, I, I need to pick awesome. that up. Oh, that sounds really cool. Where do I begin? Because I could talk about this for hours, but we can't do that. <laughs> if people who are listening to this and know my work from that, I don't want to give them any sort of hopes. <laughs> <laughs> it is purely a passion project that mm-hmm. I am more than content with doing on my own and, you know, making small bits of animation here and there. But I, I have been inquired many times whether or not I would pitch it as a show. Mm. The current people who own the IP, which I believe is Hasbro, mm-hmm. I just don't think it's something that would be up their alley because at their core, Hasbro is a toy company. So it would have to change in order to fit that, in order to sell toys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the story I want to tell is not necessarily catering towards toys in that aspect. Mm -hmm. There's a story I I would like to tell that I I just don't think at the moment that's what Hasbro wants. But if I were to pitch it, I would just change the name. It's nothing too detrimental. Uh, I think the story could hold on its own. But if I were to ever have like the Power Rangers name attached to it, I'd be like, oh man, that's a bonus. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Cool. 
But yeah, it's a weird experience. It started out as just fan art. It became so much bigger than it needed to be. So, what was it about Pirate Rangers, though, that made you want to do something Pirate Rangers-esque with this passion project? Was it the cool action, the color scheme, or was it the original Mighty Morphin Pirate Rangers kind of message where it was about these good Samaritans that were just doing good in the community and that's why they were selected to be Power Rangers because mm. whether before they had power, they were already doing good in the community that they were living in. Yeah, I mean, gosh, it's all of that. To be quite honest, the reason why I started this was because my best friend had gifted me uh, 2017 or 2018, the latest issue of Power Rangers by Boom Comics, if I'm remembering. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Shattered Grid line? Yeah. That, that one? He, he gifted me that because we're both fans of Power Rangers. And while I was reading it, like the thought came into my mind. How come Power Rangers never got an animation adaptation? I wonder that every day. <laughs> There's so many things that like lend itself to animation, like the robots, the color coordination, the the over-the-top dramatic monster of the week battles. Like the trans the transformation sequences we see in Sailor Moon with those yeah. when they transform in those mm-hmm. actors thing. You can easily do that with uh with Power Rangers. Yeah. So much lends itself to animation. And at that time, Voltron was like like big. And I thought, I wanna make an animated Power Ranger show. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it led me to rewatching the series and like you said, seeing how like, oh, these good Samaritans, even though they don't have the suits, they're still good people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then also I had also watched the 2017 movie, which takes a different sort of take on it in mm-hmm. terms of the Rangers aren't seen as good Samaritans, but they are good people at the end of the day. Yeah. And I thought, oh, I like the idea of a group of characters that think that they know what they are, but in reality, there's something more than that. Mm-hmm. So I, I think the most obvious thing that's different about my Power Rangers are red and blue are girls and yellow and pink are boys. Mm-hmm. So uh, traditionally in Power Rangers, for listeners who have no idea what Power Rangers are, or what we're talking about, <laughs> or what we're yeah. talking about whatsoever, uh, traditionally red, blue, green, and black are boys while yellow and pink are girls couldn't explain to you why that is there's been a couple rare occasions there's been a couple of white rangers that were girls and there's been a couple there was a baby blue ranger that was a girl and then actually this newest series dano fury yeah a green uh female power ranger yeah so we're slowly getting more diverse Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) (laughs) we're slowly realizing that color is not gender. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, traditionally, that's what Power Rangers used to be. Mm-hmm. And the very first thing I did was I want blue and red to be girls. Mm-hmm. And I want yellow and pink to be boys. And the main character of the whole entire show actually is Green Ranger. And he's the type of character that believes he should be the Red Ranger. Mm-hmm. But he's actually green because he has a certain arc that he needs to learn. All of the characters are their colors because it's a reflection of the character arc that they are going to go through mm-hmm. in the story. And I, I wanted that to be the story that they're good people and they're more than what they think they're capable of. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Red Ranger is a character where she feels like she, sh- she shouldn't be the Red Ranger but she learns along the way that she does have the capabilities to lead. They've, they've always been there inside of her. Mm-hmm. She just needs to learn how to 
tap into that. That's the type of story I want to tell. Yeah. And I love it so much. <laughs> I think that's really beautiful. And I, either as a full on thing or a passion project, I'd love to see that. I think that's something that has crossed my mind as well. Because like mentioned to you in the email that Yuki and I are also like massive fans of Power Rangers that we've... <laughs> some, some, so some, something that we've... Something that we bonded over, something that's like, yeah, we enjoy. And uh, and for those that were listening, all of us are just fist bumping right now. As <laughs> There's so much more I want to keep talking, but we we, we do kind of have to start winding down a bit. Uh, something that I also kind of want to ask, because again, we are a podcast that wants to spotlight Black, Indigenous, and people of color and kind of see more of those voices in animation. You, as a mixed artist, is there any change you want to see in animation in, in the animation industry or anything that you want to do to empower more voices of color? I think the one thing I would like for the animation industry to do is obviously I would love to see more stories told from perspectives of artists of color in general Mm -hmm. and have characters like that. But I think it's really important that if we're going to have these stories about characters that are of color, I think it's very important that people of color are are telling these stories. Mm -hmm. But the only way we can get there is if studios and the animation industry make an active everyday effort to invest and reach out to creators of color in general. I'm from New York. I didn't have a lot of accessibility to the animation industry, Mm -hmm. even though New York is one of the animation hubs right next to California, Canada, Texas, and Georgia. But what about the Midwest of America? What about those states that don't necessarily have that access? I I would like for the animation industry to really be more thoughtful and careful and more active in that sense. They don't have to do like anything super big. (laughs) Like you don't have to do a grand sort of thing. Mm Change is a process and it's not necessarily linear. So as long as you're making an everyday effort to make a change, then that will inevitably add up to something big in the end. But as what I can do as a person of color working in animation, I truly just want to make it easier for the next person to be able to come in and not have to experience the same struggles that I have. I'm so used to being like the only one in the room that is a different skin tone color. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm so used to that, that it's kind of bad now. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I want to change that. I, I don't want another young artist of color to walk in be like, oh, I'm the only one in the room. <laughs> I don't want that. If I can build a bridge of sorts to make it easier for the next person to cross over, then that's, that's really what I would love to do to empower new voices, future voices and current voices in the animation industry. <laughs> no, I love that. I think that's, that's really amazing. That's really well put. Hopefully we are seeing that change. I think it's, it's very slow, but hopefully yeah. we see more of it, but yeah, we just need to give more opportunities. The animation industry in itself needs to give more opportunities to people of color to tell their stories. So it was so amazing talking to you. It was so great getting to know you a lot better. Before this, weren't really acquainted, but I'm glad that we got to be acquainted <laughs> through through this podcast. As we're wrapping this up, any final advice you would want to give to students that also want to pursue a career in the animation industry? I'm going to impart something that I, I wish somebody told me when I was like in high school and college is be kind to others and more importantly, be kind to yourself. Obviously, be kind to others because animation is a very collaborative work environment and industry in general. And, you know, it is if you do something that doesn't rub 
the person the right way, that will follow you. So be kind to others, not because you're looking for your next job in a sense, but be kind to others because it's human decency. And at the end of the day, we want to work with people that are very easy to work with and we mesh well with. And the second part of that, be kind to yourself. I say that because I knew I wanted to work in the animation industry when I was nine years old. Um, So you can imagine like from nine up until now, I've been hammering hard just to get where I am today. And there were moments and times where I put a mandate and a, and a deadline on myself and that mentally wasn't healthy for me. Mm. So, you know, be kind to yourself and give yourself the time to relax when you need to relax. If you just don't feel like drawing, don't draw. I have times where I just don't draw. <laughs> <laughs> Same thing for like making posts on social media. You don't have to post if you don't want to post. <laughs> Allow yourself to still be a human at the end of the day. Uh, You're not a machine. You're a human with feelings. If you be kind to yourself, you can be kind to others. And who doesn't like a kind person? Who doesn't like a person who like is just awesome to hang out with and stuff? Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Where can our audience find you? And is there anything you want to plug? Please, 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 when it does come out, please do check out the Rugrats reboot. The team worked super hard to make a very fun show. Same thing for Lower Decks. I'm pretty sure that season two will air sometime. When that does, also check that out on Paramount+. Plus. Lastly, Critical Role, when the first season drops, I believe it's on Amazon Prime. Please do check that out as well. All three shows with people who worked super hard during a pandemic. I know. (laughs) I can't believe I worked on three shows during a pandemic. (laughs) But yeah, honestly, you can find my stuff. Like if you Google Lee Cree, you'll immediately find me. So that's it. (laughs) Perfect. Well, if you enjoyed our interview with Lee today, please rate us on Anchor, Spotify, or wherever you tune in. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at straightaheadap and let us know your response to today's in-between questions. Or if you have any suggestions for future in-between questions, contact us on social media or send us an email at straightaheadpodcast at gmail.com. If you have any suggestions for future guests, please get in touch with us. We love discovering new artists and want to use this platform to boost these voices of the future. Also, a quick shout out to Anne Allen for suggesting to us to have Lee Cree as a guest for our podcast. And finally, a big thanks to our music composer, Daniel Rodier. Thanks again for listening. And thank you once again to our guest with a bright future straight ahead. Till next week, have a wonderful day. Bye. Goodbye. <laughs>